It's Friday, April 10th, 2020. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a limited-run podcast from PEN America. On today's edition, the 2020 PEN Hemingway Award winner Ruchika Tomar on the pandemic and its unequal impacts. Then our weekly feature, Tough Questions on Free Speech and the Pandemic, with our own CEO, Suzanne Nossel. I'm Stephen Fee. All that coming up on The Pen Pod. Well, we aren't able to celebrate in person quite yet. We recently announced that author Ruchika Tomar is the winner of the 2020 Penn Hemingway Award for her debut novel, A Prayer for Travelers. Our judges referred to Ruchika as an exquisite writer, saying her book is, quote, marked by a deft and deeply rendered sense of place. And she joins me now. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for being here. So I want to know, just first of all, during this moment of social distancing, um, where are you hunkered down these days? I'm in Northern California at the moment. Um, I actually, the virus has kind of displaced me a bit, but uh, I'm staying at a friend's empty apartment. So I feel lucky to be safe. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to ask you a little bit about the book. Um, You know, Prayer for Travelers has characters who, you know, in some ways are stand on the periphery, they endure trauma. And I'm wondering how some of those themes might resonate more amid this current moment. That's a great question. Um, You know, I think there's a way in which characters like Penny and Kale can be seen uh, as outsiders around the periphery. And certainly readers who haven't grown up in a similar geographical landscape, or, you know, they might not look like um, everybody, or they might not talk like them. But I think the question of how much they're on the periphery really has to do with the vantage point of the reader. If we're talking about class or privilege, my experience is that most Americans are living under some kind of financial strain without access to certain resources. And I think, you know, a lot of readers are experiencing the same kind of desperation as the characters bred from the idea that we're all supposed to be living this American dream lives that are safer, or more financially secure than the ones that we have. Um, and when it comes to trauma, I think that what we've learned the past couple of years is that actually most women have actually experienced or will experience some kind of harassment, abuse, or assault. And I think though there are certain populations that are more vulnerable than others, unfortunately, the female condition doesn't necessarily discriminate in that regard. Right. Um, of course, right now, I am worried. I think that the most vulnerable populations often become even more vulnerable when we're in moments of crisis. So you know, women who are often balancing work outside the home with the majority of emotional labor uh, at home, the children are home, they're caretaking. Um, If they're in a place where there's not a lot of industry or increased isolation, they're going to be more at risk. And we know right now, Texas, Ohio, and Mississippi have restricted reproductive procedures that they do Mm -hmm. not essential for women during the pandemic. And if those are upheld, they'll have lifelong consequences for those women. So I think I'm worried that this moment is going to provide a smokescreen for, uh, you know, a lot of powers that be to kind of get away with, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, putting additional pressure on women and their rights. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's something that, you know, uh, I, I've heard I've heard two arguments made about where we are right now, that in one sense, the virus is leveling, that, that you know, a virus um, is hitting the globe, it's hitting the world, and yet it also exposes these deep rifts of, of gender, of class, of identity, um, where, you know, uh, not everyone is able to, to be resilient uh, in the same way that others might be, especially on, on the side of healthcare. Absolutely. Um, 
I don't think everyone in America is experiencing the same pandemic. You know, people with more resources are going to be more comfortable. I, the fact that I can, you know, I was displaced because of the virus, but I have, you know, a friend's apartment offered to me that I can stay in, which is incredibly lucky. Not everybody has that. Um, so yeah, not everyone is experiencing the same things and it's tough. I hope that, you know, when we come out of this, things will change, but who knows? Well, I wonder, I mean, maybe for your book or for, for other pieces of literature right now, I mean, you know, there's always this saying, this feeling that, that literature provides a degree of empathy and that now is a moment when we need probably empathy more than ever. I mean, are you finding that literature is giving solace right now? Do you find that it's giving context or, or some kind of framing around all of this? I mean, I think, I think yes. Like I've, I, I think right now I've been reading a lot more, um, and I think that what books can do and the kind of way that they can engage us is in a different way than media can is really um, comforting at this moment. Obviously, media can be overwhelming to engage with at this moment because of the constant news cycle. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm finding comfort in reading. I don't know if I'm finding comfort in creating <laughs> uh, literature or if I'm doing that very well at this moment. But I'm trying. Yeah. I mean, what... What do you, I mean, obviously the displacement you mentioned, you know, how else is, is this virus sort of having an impact on your work and the work of other writers? I think we're all trying to really use this time. Um, I know, you know, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. It's a gift to be able to be home and work, but also the anxiety of this moment is just so pervasive and overwhelming mm -hmm. that I don't think, you know, it's difficult to concentrate. As I mentioned, you know, people who are mothers obviously have their children home right now and uh, they're having to deal with homeschooling, which I can't imagine. Um, I think just a lot of us are spending a lot of time worrying about our parents or trying to take care of them or friends. Um, and it can be distracting. I I'm trying, but um, I'm hoping that there's a period of adjustment that we're going through. And, uh, you know, after a while, hopefully we'll figure out ways to adapt to this kind of new normal and, um, I do think the desire that I'm seeing for a connection is really heartening. Uh, so what we're doing, obviously, as writers is responding to human experience. So I, I hope that this moment ultimately will help us recalibrate our priorities and make our work more compassionate and more urgent. Yeah. And and do you, you mentioned that you're not as necessarily feeling like you're as productive right now. I mean, do you have guidance for other writers about how they can focus right now? Or do you just feel like it's it's just too difficult? I think I'm the person who needs guidance. I don't know if I'm in a position to, to advise anybody, but, um, you know, I hope that I think that we're all just doing the best that we can. And I hope that we're not going to be too hard on ourselves. I've noticed that I'm giving my students completely different advice than I'm giving myself or my friends, which, you know, I'm telling my students to just take care of themselves and not be too hard on themselves. But of course, uh, for myself, I'm, I do feel like an intense pressure to produce and um, to be productive during this insane time. So I, I would hope that we just kind of ease up on ourselves and do the best that we can. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if I may, what are you reading right now? I'm reading uh, Rebecca Mackay's The Great Believers, which is offensively good almost. Um, <laughs> I have no <laughs> idea how she managed to do that so well. Um, and uh, Muriel Sparks, Loitering with Intent, both, um, both are incredible and alternately make me feel like I should never try to write again and are inspiring. So. 
Well, we all, of course, hope that's not the case. Um, uh, Ruchi Gatomar's novel, A Prayer for Travelers, was just awarded the Penn Hemingway Award for a debut novel. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Now to our weekly segment, Tough Questions, where we put tricky questions of free speech and free expression to our CEO, Suzanne Nossel. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Stephen. So let's start uh, with Diamond and Silk, uh, the pro-Trump sisters who this week were uh, at least temporarily locked out of Twitter for spreading misinformation about the coronavirus. Do you think Twitter was right in this case? You know, I think their position was justified. They have promulgated a very thorough set of user guidelines in terms of COVID-19 and the types of content that they bar from the platform. And the emphasis is really on elevating and amplifying credible, legitimate sources of health information, whether that's the World Health Organization or the CDC or state boards of health, and where people contravene that advice directly. And particularly in this case, the tweet in question from Diamond and Silk told people that quarantining was going to hurt them, that their immune system would thrive if they went outside and interact with with others, and that staying at home was dangerous. So this is in direct contravention of all the advice that we are receiving in terms of lockdown, shelter in place, uh, stay at home. And so I think they were within their rights in terms of policing their platform, trying to make sure that it's a place where you can find truthful information where you're not going to be misled, where there's not a risk that you're going to be relying on something that is spurious uh, and that you may take action that could actually endanger you. So, you know, that's part of their right. I don't see uh, a situation here where this was politically motivated. I know we recognize Diamond and Silk are close to President Trump. They've hobnobbed. Mm -hmm. At the White House. And so, you know, is this a way of indirectly getting at him? I don't think so. They've taken down thousands of posts of uh, spurious content related to COVID-19 and for the most part have gotten high marks in terms of how they've done it. Yeah, and drawing bright lines. Um, so, Suzanne, this week we we sent a letter to Congress um, asking for additional funds in whatever the next stimulus package looks like uh, to be directed to local news outlets. It's something that we recommended in a report we put out last year. I mean, do you think it's wise to put the financial future of local news in the hands of Congress and, by extension, potentially President Trump? Well, it's interesting. You know, it kind of goes back for me to how we got into this focus on the local news crisis in the first place, which really grew out of an effort that we made back in 2017 after the 2016 election. We had been a somewhat New York-centric small organization. We always had members across the country. But when we went to engage those members and we put an emphasis on folks who live between the coasts and began to talk to them about the press freedom concerns that are uppermost for them, what really came to the foreground was this issue of the decimation of local news. People told us that newsrooms had been uh, slashed, that reporting staffs were a kind of skeleton crew, that their once robust newspaper that they would spend a whole Sunday morning poring over had been reduced to uh, a shred of its former self, and that this was having grave consequences in terms of the role of the local press in holding officials accountable, keeping people informed, fostering robust and vibrant community life. And so we 
decided to take a look at the problem comprehensively, and we did a major report that we released last November called Losing the News. We looked at three in-depth case studies, uh, one on Denver, one on Detroit, one on uh, Greensboro region in North Carolina. And we examined every facet of what has happened to the business models for local news, how philanthropy has come to step in and fund small kind of green shoots news organizations that are keeping journalism alive and innovating. And, you know, we really kind of scratched our heads to ask what is the solution here? Because the display advertising that, you know, was the lifeblood of the local news industry for so many decades has largely evaporated. People just don't advertise in newspapers. Uh, That's not the prime vehicle to reach an audience. And the philanthropic contribution amounts to about $300 million a year against a revenue loss of $35 billion. And so when we kind of saw that gulf, uh, it was clear to us that every solution in the book would have to be brought to bear in order to address this you know, very grave risk that local news in communities is just drying up entirely. So we do think public funding is part of the solution. We kind of came to that reluctantly. You know, we're a free expression organization. We don't really want the government uh, having its fingers in journalism, but we examined models from around the world, other democracies where there is more robust public funding for news and there are gating mechanisms and oversight mechanisms that ensure that political influence is kept out of it. And yeah, there are also models here in the U.S. in terms of funding for science, the National Endowment for the Arts, National Endowment for the Humanities, you know, that are government sources of funding, but so many universities take that money and they don't feel necessarily that they're under Donald Trump's thumb. So I'd say it's a conclusion that we reached reluctantly, but we do think this is kind of part of the picture. And that's why we're calling for a hard look at how to support local news organizations through the stimulus package. Yeah. Well, I, I want to ask you a last question. I, you know, the Knight First Amendment Institute said last week it was going to sue the CDC to get more information about how it might be restricting the ability of public health officials to communicate with reporters. And then, of course, just this week, we saw uh, the White House threaten to withhold public health officials from going on CNN because CNN's not airing the White House briefings in their entirety. I mean, are you, are you, what are your concerns here about the White House potentially muzzling uh, scientists, especially right now? Yeah, they're very serious. I mean, this administration has a now long track record of retribution toward people, whether it's journalists or officials who say uh, things and divulge information that uh, doesn't cast the administration in the light that they'd like to be seen in. You know, the firing of the inspector generals uh, this week, a firing of other officials, castigation of uh, you know the Navy captain who spoke out. But I think when it comes to the scientists, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, you know, this really is a matter of life and death. You know, we talked a few minutes ago about the waves of misinformation that are flowing all across social media and the Internet when it comes to COVID-19. And in that realm, it really can be deadly if you're told that a certain cure might work or you should try a particular drug or you can expect to be able to you know, go outside and consort with people, you know, as soon as next week, and that information is not valid, you could be putting yourself at direct risk. So the role of these scientists in telling us, you know, what is true, what we can expect, uh, what treatments have been validated is essential. And to see politicians 
going out and muzzling them, you know, whether it's President Trump, you know, stepping forward to prevent Dr. Fauci from answering a question at a briefing or these directives that scientists must not speak to the public unless their comments are vetted through the White House or this latest revelation that Drs. Fauci and Burke are being blocked from speaking on CNN and being interviewed as a way to hold leverage over the network to cover the White House briefings in full. You know, these are ways of keeping credible, informed, expert information away from the American public. And that's exactly the opposite of what we need. We should have our politicians vetting their statements through the scientists, not the scientists vetting their statements through the politicians. This is exactly backward. And it's it's dangerous. And it kind of is creating an environment in this country where I think it's very hard for people to know who they can believe and what they can believe. You know, the, the president's bully pulpit, you know, used to be the most credible kind of platform in the world. The statement that was made out of the White House by the president was so carefully vetted and fact-checked. It was, you know, the gold standard in veracity, you know, for Americans and around the world and, you know, would be repeated and a transcript circulated. And now that has been just sort of dragged down to the point where everyone knows that when he gets up there night after night, that there's going to have to be an extensive fact-checking and that he's likely to repeat claims that have been you know, time and again, discredited and disproven, uh, you know, and yet he sticks with them. And so it, it's very disturbing to see the denigration of the truth and the the dismissal of science and these, these poor doctors who are in the position. It's almost as if the American people are the hostages and they're our hostage negotiators. They're the ones who can talk with the president and sometimes have his ear and convince him to do the right thing. So we need them to keep that channel of connection alive so that they remain within his confidence. Uh, and, and I understand why they are very, very careful because they want to continue to influence him. But, you know, the cost of their doing so uh, is very high. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Suzanne Nossel is CEO of PEN America. Her book, Dare to Speak on All These Issues and More, comes out this summer. Uh, you can leave us a voicemail and ask your tough questions for Suzanne. You can find that link on our website, PEN.org. Suzanne, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Stephen. Take care. And that's our episode for Friday, April 10th, 2020. Join us next week for the Pen Pod. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Sign up on our website for our daily Dare newsletter, where we track major stories about literature, free expression, and the news of the world. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. See you Monday. <laughs>